0: in in that larger series, we've been going for a couple of weeks on New Testament worship and the 21st century church, we have sort of already seen in earlier messages in this series that uh, God is interested not only in the priority of worship, but also the way we practice worship, not just that it's valuable but how it's to be done. The mind goes back to Uzzah. How many can remember a few weeks ago we studied Uzzah? Anybody remember Uzzah? The ark is coming on a cart and it hits something and it's looking like it might totter and Uzzah reaches out to steady it. And the text says God struck him dead. Contrary to the instruction of The Lord. How much does it matter? Our actions in God's presence apparently have to be not just according to sincerity. They should be that. But they also have to be according to instruction. I had a number of people who actually talked to me that Sunday morning and said, You know, I know you tried to explain it, Pastor Don, but it doesn't sit nicely with me. He wasn't trying to do anything bad and God struck him dead. There is a fascinating passage I probably should have used it at the time. Actually when I got home, Reenie said, "Why didn't you use this passage?" And I actually said to her, "Well, now you tell me, you know." There is this fascinating scripture in the book of Deuteronomy talking about the king when Israel's going to want kings like the other nations. They're going to want a ruler. And you have to jump into the middle of a pretty extended passage on the subject. But when you look at Deuteronomy 17, verses 17 and 18, it says, and this he, by the way, this is whatever king, the king. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. See, people will come and say, look at the Old Testament. Look at at Solomon. Look at David. Look at all the wives. And it seems like it was... Fair game in the Old Testament to do all that stuff. And they never go back to passages like this. God warned them in advance, this is going to ruin you. Don't do this. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now look at this. This is the neat part. And when he, any king, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So God God, God says, when the king is on the throne. So here's, here's David. Think back to Uzzah. And the ark comes from the Philistines. And it comes on a cart. And David's happy and rejoicing along with everybody else. And that's when this whole mess breaks out. The cart hits something and He tries to steady it, and he's he's struck dead. But long before any of that happened, God gives these instructions and says, now, here's the thing about kings like David or any other king over Israel. Here's what I want them to do. I want them to take this law, and it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's the whole Levitical law. The passage is very clear. It's also very clear, not in the verses we read, but you can check it out for yourself in the broader context. He's to do this every year. The king is to take the whole law. You ever read the book of Leviticus through? He's to take the whole law of God, the king, and he's to sit down annually and write it out. Not just read it. He's to, there's no word processor, he's to hand copy. Word for word, the king, the law of God, and he's to do that every year. Why? So a situation like David and the ark coming on the cart will never, ever happen. Well, that's very nice, Pastor Don. It's all ancient history. How many people... How many people to this day complain about the ways of Almighty God? The things they hear people say and they just parrot the same complaints, the same questions. Complain about the will and way of Almighty God who couldn't even find God's word on the subject if you gave them the reference. They wouldn't even be able to look it up. Couldn't find it in the Bible. God's will always seems strange to people who don't take the time to learn it. Okay, I can't go longer on that. Worse still, there are many people who hold the idea that because we're now uh, under the new covenant, not the old covenant. So we're on the Post-side of the outpouring of the Spirit, that worship is no longer to be practiced according to any specific pattern. And so they take that idea, we'll look at this text again in later weeks. They take the idea that, you know, God is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, and they take that somehow just to mean sort of wholeheartedness and sincerity. So worship is now a matter of just inward and personal inclinations and promptings and styles. Temperament enters into it and a host of other things. And and no argument from me. There's an element of pretty precious truth to be defended in that view. Boy, uh, humankind and the church, no different. We have this terrible propensity to turn anything with spiritual life and vitality into a created ritual, a routine. We can can apparently do that out of the most life-giving things. So that much, I think, is a good reminder. But we also need the reminder that, that the Holy Spirit who comes among us to Kind of lead us into worship to stimulate our awareness of the presence of Jesus. It's the same Holy Spirit who gave us the record of the early Spirit filled New Testament church. He's the same Holy Spirit who preserved a pattern of how the New Testament made its approach to the Father in in worship. All of that uh, creates issues. For today's teaching on worship. I don't think we'll finish it. I mean there's so much in the Bible relating to worship. Some of the things we still do. Some of the things we no longer do. How are we supposed to sort out. What sticks as valid worship instruction for today. And, and what is no longer applicable. Is it all just up for grabs. Are we free, each one of us, simply to do his or her own thing? So here's the foundation issue. Does God care how this church worships him? Is it enough that we genuinely and sincerely love him? Is that enough? Is it enough just to have loving thoughts in our mind when we come to worship? Is that where we are? A lot of people think so. And so you think about Uzzah. Struck dead by the hand of God as he reached out to steady the ark of the Lord to keep it from falling off the cart into the mud. You think of him because, as we said when we looked at that passage, he was as sincere as anybody could be about defending the glory of God. I mean, that's what makes him do it. He loved God. But, but he disobeyed the worship instructions. And immediately we want to say, but Pastor Don, yeah, that's old covenant, Pastor Don. Yes, it is. And and right in making that observation, we become aware that there are some differences between the practice of the worship of God in the Old Testament and in the New. So we recognize, while God doesn't change, some aspects of worship do. We don't butcher lambs in this place. We don't bring two goats, kill one, lay hands on the other one, and send them out into the south parking lot carrying our sins away. We don't apply the blood of a lamb to our right earlobe when we enter the sanctuary. Yep, it's in there. So there are a lot of changes in the way we worship the Lord today. So, so this is really a practical issue that doesn't doesn't get talked about very much. What changes, and what mustn't change? So how is the church to know which instructions and commands about worship apply today and which ones don't? That's what we're going to get into, just kind of opening the door a crack in today's message and then a couple other ones. But that's what this is about. I'm spending some time on this issue because because it doesn't get covered enough, in in my opinion, in churches. Uh, It isn't maybe the kind of terrible material that leaves people just feeling blessed out of their minds as they sit and listen. You wouldn't do this all the time. But I think it has, has such practical relevance for a host of other issues that, that do keep our lives blessed, do keep our lives spiritually sharp, and do keep our minds biblically informed. So if if we never study this, if if you don't understand today's teaching concept, I would say at least this, you'll be vulnerable to a host of hot-headed teachers who rip isolated verses from both the Old Testament and the New and try and make you feel less spiritual because you don't apply it to worship the way they would like you to apply it to your worship. We know this is true. Worship techniques. Special diets. The Jesus diet. You can buy a book. Waving banners. It's fizzing out now, but if you didn't dance before the Lord, you were somewhat on a lower level in your anointed worship. Laughing. A host of things. We've we've seen them come, we've seen them go, and I'll tell you this there'll be others. You know that for sure, it's right around the corner. So the key issue here, that at least I'm concerned this church gets, what instructions and patterns are binding and which ones are not? It's not that any of those things is, I don't mean they're satanic or bad, but, but still, we don't carry over everything from the biblical text into our modern worship practice. So, so the worship issue forces questions to the surface. Is everything just a matter of taste? Or is absolutely everything still required? Do you still have to ceremonially wash your hands when you enter the, the sanctuary? Must we still abstain from lobster and crab? Can we now wear garments woven of blended fabrics? Or are they still off the list? Oh, they're off the list, but why? I know most of those questions have kind of a ridiculous ring. I mean, we know, we would almost say instinctively, that that these specific teachings, these Bible teachings, they aren't applicable to the church today, and that's true. The real question is, why are these things no longer compulsory for the church at worship? We know they weren't bad commands. They came from God. I mean, you can still keep them if you want. There's nothing wrong with them, but they aren't necessary. They aren't spiritually helpful anymore. So so let's back up the boat, and let's try and lay a foundation. Something we can stand on to deal with why some of these old testament injunctions are no longer compulsory for the church and and that will give us a footing to deal with other issues as well so before we nail down concepts of worship let's examine some rules for let's examine some rules for just gleaning instruction from you got a bible right some kind of bible let's let's lay down some ground rules for how we get stuff out of our bibles does that seem like a practical thing for a church to do? How shall we get instruction from our Bibles? You got you got this much Old Testament. This much new. That's actually counting the maps and charts at the back. How do we sort it out? I'm going to look I'm going to try and look at two two principles. Basic principles. Point number one. Always start with the New Testament. This is basic. Always start with the New Testament and interpret the Old Testament in the light of it. Let me just give you an example of this from the subject that has nothing to do with congregational worship. Let's just consider the subject of the creation of Adam and Eve. The beginning of of history as, as we consider it. There are a lot of questions people have about those early chapters of Genesis. A lot of questions. A lot of people wonder just how literally those chapters are to be read. Were Adam and Eve two actual individuals made on a specific day of creation? Or are they a picture of the whole human race? I'm reading a very, very prominent New Testament scholar. If I said his name, everybody in this room that studied at seminary would, would know of whom I speak. And very clearly, he would, he would argue that these aren't people like we're people. They're a picture of something. To my mind, the way you have to approach those chapters of Genesis is you don't go to Genesis. Not first. There's somewhere else you go in your Bible first. You don't find the key to interpreting those creation chapters by reading those chapters alone. You have to search somewhere else. There's, there are New Testament passages that shine light on the early chapters of Genesis. Let me show you where you might begin. You might begin with a passage like this. Matthew 19, 3-6. This is not the subject this morning. The Pharisees came up to him, that's to Jesus, tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And, and my goodness, this, this, the argument just spins forever and forever and forever. He answered, he answered, have you not read? Let me get this for you there. Have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man should, now this is the quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now this isn't a sermon about divorce. But, but the passage does teach it does teach the principle of interpreting the Old Testament in the light of the New. So so what is relevant for our study today is is the fact that Jesus based all his instruction about marriage and divorce on this literal account of the original creation of of one man and one woman. So, So in other words, what we have here is Jesus' view... Jesus, the omniscient, all-knowing God the Son. We have his view on how we should consider Adam and Eve. I mean, I'm citing that example just to illustrate the principle here, the important principle of interpreting the Old Testament in the light of the New. Let me give you, let me give you another example. Romans 5, 14 and 15. Paul's in the middle of a deep theological argument. He says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Okay, so Adam, Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. So we're told something about Adam. He's, he's a type of someone who was to come the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, who's that? Adam, right? Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Again, one of the reasons I believe Adam was an actual person is, well, (laughs) I I believe Moses was, right? I mean, what what this text is doing is it's it's sort of tracing uh, a genealogical link between these two people. How many people? Generations from Adam to Moses. Pretty hard to have a real person on this end and not on this end. But more than that, I also believe Jesus Christ was a real person. So Paul talks about Adam and Moses and Jesus in the same text. So Adam's life had real, solid, historic consequences for the human race. And then Paul says Jesus' life had stunning consequences for the human race as well. So so Adam and Jesus, they stand or they fall together. If Adam can be explained away, so can Jesus Christ. Everything collapses. So the point, the point of this example is the best way to come to a complete understanding of the Old Testament is always to read and understand it in the light of the New. The New Testament, it's not more inspired, it's not more holy, but it's more complete. It's progressive revelation. It doesn't move, and this is important because there's all sorts of guys selling a lot of books. Uh, Brian Zahn would be one of them, where the, the, the clear teaching is it moves from mistakes in the Old Testament to corrections in the New Testament. That's not what we believe. What we believe is there's remember those cameras you, you'd snap a picture they were a wonderful invention and then it would just go and this little picture would come sliding out the front. I'm dating myself. Um, yeah. And you'd hold it up and it was like a miracle. Gradually, you'd see the face of the person you were taking a picture of and then you'd actually be able to recognize the person and then you'd be able to see the face and whether they had a tan or not and whether they were wearing makeup or not and whether that was a good picture of them or you could, it, it all just sharpened. That's kind of the idea in progressive revelation. It's not, that, it's not that it's untrue in the old and true in the new. It's not less inspired. The word we use as theologians speak of the confluency of the inspiration of Scripture, meaning it's all equally inspired it might not, to your mind, be all equally relevant, but it is all inspired nonetheless. You interpret the old in the light of the new. Now, you do this whether you think you do or not. We're going to have communion today. And we think about the covenant. And we think about the fulfillment of the covenant where Jeremiah says, I'm going to take the law, it's just stone tablets, and by my spirit, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, right? Jeremiah 31, and that's the new covenant that Jesus comes. We'll read the words. And when you say that, you might not be uh, theologically thinking it all through, but you're doing exactly what I just said. You're interpreting the Old Testament in the light of the new, because if you go to Jeremiah 31 and read all about the promise of that covenant, you know who it's made to? Israel. Israel. Look it up. There's no mention of Gentiles or the church or anything else. The new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is exclusively given to God's people Israel. Well, why do we apply it to us? We do that because Jesus teaches us to do that. Do you get what I'm saying? You interpret the old in the light of the new covenant. That's just a basic rule and it applies to so, so many different areas. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he poured out his spirit on the church. The church today is the body of Christ, awaiting the return of her Lord. While we wait, and while we evangelize, we worship. That's what we do. And for direction in our worship, we have the writings of the apostles, the first inspired leaders of the church, to give us guidance and direction on how we approach God's throne. All the other Old Testament scriptures, they lead up to their fulfillment in the New Testament. But the final picture, the completed story, it's contained in the pages of the New Testament. In fact, I think this is an important statement and I think it's true. The Old Testament only makes sense in the light of the New. Here's here's an example. Why are many jews to this day still waiting for the coming of the messiah they read the same old testament in slightly different order but they read the same old testament as you and i but they've they've rejected i'm talking now on on a whole there are messianic jews of course but on the whole they've they've rejected the completion of the story in the New Testament. Because of that, Paul says, they are blind. That's the word he uses. Blind to many passages where the coming of Jesus is specifically explained in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. Okay, I've taken more time on that than I should have. But I think it's foundational. I think it's an important point to everything else we're going to say about worship in the next few weeks. Let me go over one other point. It's 1049. Take a deep breath. This is not the sermon. This is just the point. Point number two. Can you guys put it up there? There you go. Let's read it together just for the sheer delight of it. (laughs) Major on worship expressions that are seen to be permanently binding either by being carried over from the Old Testament to the New, or are clearly introduced in the New Testament and presented as permanent additions to the worship of the church. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. This is the point where we're taking that previous principle, always interpreting the Old Testament in the light of the New, And we're applying it specifically now to the area of worship. Okay, do you see what we did? The general principle, interpret the old in the light of the new. Now, take that principle and apply it to the issue of our corporate worship, our worship of God. That's what we're doing now. We're going to spend two weeks doing this. I know there's a lot in that point, but the concept is just, it's, it's too important to leave unpacked. Most churches, that's an overstatement. Some churches, some churches, even those fairly vital in their worship life, can't tell you why they worship the way they do, other than it seems to be effective. Or they have some denominational standards from conservative, liberal, charismatic. And so people go to these different churches, and they settle in. They settle in with varying degrees of comfort, based usually on not a lot more than just the fact that the church's worship style kind of fits their temperament. But biblically, biblically they haven't a clue why one style might be any better than another style. In fact, they might even consider it, intolerant and a bit narrow-minded to even, to even consider the possibility that one pursuit of worship might actually be more scripturally mandated than another. That's how far we've gone down the road of linking congregational worship with just personal taste and sincerity. I guide every week. That's not true. Regularly. I will have people who will come out to me after a morning service, and they'll say, "You know, we never come to your church on Sunday night." And then they'll say, do "You know why we don't come?" And I, I know that's what they want to tell me. It's those, it's those, it's those prayer groups that you do. I hate praying out loud, and I don't like praying in a group, so we just don't come to your church Sunday night. And that's how people sort out what church they're going to go to or not go to. I like this. I enjoy this. I don't enjoy that. I don't like that. Never mind that, you know, you find, whenever you find the church gathered in the New Testament, go through the book of Acts, and I'll tell you what they're doing. They're listening to the word, and they're praying. And they're lifting their voices in prayer. Read that lengthy, convoluted second point silently and look at it. We must major on worship expressions that are seen to be permanently binding. Okay, the permanently binding worship expressions. And they'll get there in two ways. Worship expressions become permanently binding in one of two ways. Either by carried over from the Old Testament to the New. In other words, they keep going. Or, they're introduced in the New Testament, and there are some like that, but they're clearly introduced as permanent additions to the worship life of the church. So you see those two things? There's two ways where worship practices become standard for a New Testament church. First, something is done in the Old Testament, and clearly they keep doing it in the New. That's one. The second way is, It wasn't done in the Old Testament at all, but something is introduced and it's clearly said to be either by word or by example, repeated, to be done permanently. Let's take the second part of that statement for the rest of this teaching, okay? Consider some of the new patterns and instructions of worship that are introduced in the New Testament, but they're emphasized as being of ongoing importance. This should be the easiest part of the worship issue. Because aside from, you know, a few cultural nuances, we are the New Testament church. So we live by the words of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. We are the body of Christ called out. And we gather, as the early church did, with certain goals, certain disciplines in common. You can see some of them. And they, here's the verb first. Do you know, if you, if you just sat, went that far in the text and stopped. They didn't just do these things. There's the apostles teaching, this fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. But they didn't just do those things. They were, they were devoted to those things how how let me how devoted are you to regular church attendance devoted i mean or apostolic teaching both both through preaching and teaching and through personal study Devoted. They devoted themselves. We do a lot of things. A lot of things are important, but we aren't devoted to those things like we're devoted to this. What, what will you be devoted to this evening? Devoted. So here's a simple picture of the building blocks of church worship in the New Testament. I mean, there are other practices that became habitual in the New Testament as well. These aren't things they did once or occasionally, but repeatedly, some of them at our Lord's command. Here's some others. Believer's baptism. Included by our Lord in the Great Commission. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, whatever terminology you you want to use, which we do until he comes. Baptism in the Great Commission when you go, making disciples, baptizing them. Don't just make disciples, baptize them. You baptize them, Jesus says. Are you baptized? Are are you trying to live your Christian life with a fundamental point of disobedience right at the entry point of it? It's not going to work. The Lord's Supper, until he comes. There's obvious cornerstones there. Let me just, let me just Lovingly say this. We have churches right around here, new churches, that never celebrate the Lord's Supper and never baptize. And you need to just sort out in your mind whether you class that as a church or not. A church is more than just Christians getting together at Starbucks. A church should have regularly a celebration of the Lord's Supper, baptism, and some form of church discipline. Those three things ought to be present where a real church exists. Just think about that. Other pieces of the picture are formed not by direct command, perhaps, but just by the obvious abiding place they had in the practice of the New Testament church. That would include things like uh, the brand new concept of gathering for worship on the Lord's Day of celebrating and proclaiming Christ's resurrection from the dead. I mean, the resurrection has never been undone. There's no theological reason from changing from worship on the Lord's day. Tied in with that would be things like regular financial offerings on the first day of the week. That has pretty good textual support, 1 Corinthians 16, too. There's the scripturally ordered exercise of the gifts of the Spirit, that they did not die, with the completion of the New Testament or the death of the last apostle. Not a shred of evidence in the Bible for that. Orderly, not going beyond what is written, Paul says, but the the use of the gifts of the Spirit, according to the teaching of the Scripture, not just the emotion of the moment. Prayer for the sick, James 5, 15 to 19. We do that pretty well every Sunday morning and in prayer groups every Sunday night. Included should be, and churches are fast moving away from this, you won't see it, you'll rarely see it, the public reading of Scripture. We, we, I remember when we just started doing that several years back, I remember being in a, in a large church out west, it was in Minneapolis, and the service was about halfway through, and all of a sudden this text went up on the screen, and everybody, no one said anything, everybody just stood to their feet, and they all read it. And I remember thinking, we really don't read scripture out loud together anymore in churches. Remember the hymn books? Remember hymn books? And at the back, remember what you used to have at the back? Responsive readings. I mean, I grew up. I grew up in, a, in, in just an era where everybody went to the back of the hymn book, and somebody would get up and say, we're reading scripture reading 483, and there'd be light print, dark print, light print, dark print, and everybody just went through and read scripture. I'm not saying it has to be done like that. But the public reading of Scripture has almost disappeared. Almost disappeared. Paul actually has to encourage young Timothy to not neglect this reading of Scripture. Interesting the way he says that. Okay, so there's some examples. I'm not doing these exhaustively. I'm just talking in principle here. All of these practices, they find their root in the direct instruction of the Holy Spirit through the original apostles for the church age? How important are they? Why are they commanded and demonstrated repeatedly in the New Testament? Well, because. Because they preserve life. They preserve life. And they generate freedom. Freedom isn't found by cutting loose. Freedom in Christ is found by digging deep. Those are two different things. It's found in the forms and footings of biblical worship. I mean, think of the Israelites putting the ark of the Lord on a cart. Remember why they did it? Remember why they did it? Because the Philistines, when they were trying to get rid of the cart, remember what they did? They put it on the ark, rather. They put it on a cart with oxen, and they just said, get out of here. (laughs) You're nothing but trouble. And so that's how they received the ark on a cart. And somewhere along the way, King David forgot what he should have been writing out every year. All those instructions. What's wrong with a cart? That's the way the ark had come. A uh, cart was easy. Cart is convenient. A cart is more efficient. It's the way it had come. And that's what everybody that's what everybody seemed to be doing but they hurt themselves simply because they didn't know the instructions. Know the instructions. So, you come to certain conclusions after years of ministry. Revival is rarely, I'm not saying never, revival, in my opinion, is rarely the top blowing off. It's, it's more the roots going deeper. So I just want to close and ask you, are you taking those New Testament forms of worship seriously enough? All of them that I just quickly kind of rambled through. We'll look at them in more detail. Are, are you thinking you'll find more rest for your soul on your own terms than, than under the yoke of Christ? Don't just look for what is easy. Don't just look for what is less time-consuming. Don't just look for what suits your temperament more. Or the way you were raised. That's how the cart came to me, Pastor Tom. <laughs> I'm just using the same cart. But what if it wasn't supposed to be on a cart in the first place? Don't just judge worship by momentary thrill. Anchor it all in the word of his grace. And we'll look at this more next week. Let's pray, church.